Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad, although I could be a lot sadder because so far, the January weather in Chicago is decent. We've had a little bit of snow and a little bit of cold, but I can feel my extremities when I walk outside, so I shouldn't complain. In today's study guide, we're going to be covering the last of the Bonaparte siblings, Jerome Bonaparte, who I'm going to argue was probably the most useless of all of the Bonapartes, especially when it came to Napoleon trying to consolidate power. You almost certainly did not learn about him in history class, thanks to his uselessness, but his study guide has Niagara Falls, a serious overpacking problem, and a scandalous single mother. Let's begin. The child who would one day be Jerome Bonaparte is born November 15th, 1784 in Corsica. His birth name is Girolamo Bonaparte, but I'm just going to be calling him Jerome throughout the episode as I tend to because one, it's easier, and two, he is going to go by the name Jerome for the vast majority of his life. Jerome Bonaparte is the last surviving child of, surprise, surprise, Maria, Letizia, and Carlo Bonaparte. But by the time Jerome is born, Carlo Bonaparte's health is on a serious decline. In fact, when Jerome is only three months old, his father will die, most likely of stomach cancer. And because his father's death brings the entire Bonaparte family back together, this does mean that Jerome is going to be regularly interacting with his famous big brother, Napoleon, starting in his infancy because Napoleon is back at Corsica to help out with the various family dramas because, as we've established, Carlo Bonaparte kind of left the entire clan in a bit of a financial pickle. Growing up, Jerome doesn't have that much of a formal education. After all, his family has lost most of its money, and they are living on an island that kind of, but not quite, belongs to France. Normally, his mother would have been the one to educate him at home until he was ready to go to school, but by now, his mother is much more focused on keeping the family financially afloat than on spending all of her time educating Jerome and the other younger Bonaparte siblings, specifically Pauline and Caroline. For a moment, it looks like maybe Jerome's older brothers, Joseph and Napoleon, might be able to help out with the whole education thing, but Napoleon instead fixes his sight on Louis Bonaparte, Jerome's big brother, so Jerome kind of gets left out of the picture. As a result, we just don't know that much about Jerome's early life. Until 1793, when he's nine and the entire family has to flee to France because of Lucien's drama with the Corsican government. Once the family settles down in France, Jerome probably changes his name to Jerome. Once again, we don't know exactly when this name shift happened, but given that his older sisters changed their name upon moving to France, it seems likely that Jerome would have done the same. During the first few months in France, when the family is still trying to get their feet under them and Napoleon hasn't quite had his string of military victories, Jerome is going to be very, very close to his much older brother, Joseph. But that will eventually change. 
1795, Napoleon decides that, yeah, Jerome probably needs to get some sort of formal education. After all, the rest of the Bonaparte brothers have a formal education, and it'd look bad if their youngest didn't. So Napoleon sends Jerome to a religious school that is run by the Catholic Church. Shocking, I know. Napoleon probably chose the specific school that he sent Jerome because it was the same school where a young Eugene de Bernays, aka Josephine Bonaparte's son, went, and this is right around the time when Napoleon and Josephine are starting to get to know each other, so why not send their relations to the same school so they can get even closer? During his time at the school, Jerome is known for being a pretty good student. He really excels at geography specifically, but he also quickly gets a reputation for being amazingly spoiled. In 1798, Napoleon moves Jerome to a different school, maybe because by now Jerome's less than excellent reputation is starting to follow him and everyone's realizing that he's actually not spending that much time studying. At this new school, Jerome continues the trend of not actually studying. Instead, he spends most of his time flirting with girls at a nearby school, including his future sister-in-law, Hortense. Due to the fact that Jerome isn't exactly the most studious of the Bonaparte brothers, Napoleon does eventually withdraw him from the second school and instead just uses a series of private tutors to attempt to complete his youngest brother's education. By 1800, Jerome is out of school for good, he's completed his education, he theoretically knows things. And he also has more than a little bit of a reputation for being a playboy and for spending a lot of money on a lot of things that he doesn't necessarily need and can't necessarily afford. For example, when he's 16, Jerome spends 10,000 francs on art in a single sitting and that's around a million dollars nowadays, give or take a bit. When Napoleon finds out about this little shopping spree, he obviously is not exactly happy. He yells at Jerome, and Jerome's response is to shrug, say, But brother, I love beautiful things. What were you expecting me to do? To keep Jerome out of further financial trouble and to give him some sort of experience, Napoleon pulls a few strings and manages to get his brother a job in the consular guards. Once again, things start out fine, but pretty quickly, Jerome makes a whole mess of things. He gets into a huge fight with another one of the consular guards, which ends up escalating into a duel, because of course it does. Ultimately, both Jerome and his rival survive the duel, although Jerome is going to be hit by a bullet and, as a result, will carry a piece of a bullet in his body for the rest of his life. After that little dueling adventure, once again, Napoleon realizes he needs to find a job for Jerome. So he gets Jerome in the French Navy. At the beginning, the ship he's on is really focused on trying to break British naval control around Egypt and in the wider Mediterranean Sea. On this first ship, Jerome is going to see a little bit of action. His ship does manage to destroy some smaller British ships, and because he is Napoleon's little brother, when everyone's getting celebrated for this, Jerome really gets the biggest celebrations. Then, in 1803, he gets another promotion through the hope of Napoleon. 
suddenly Jerome gets put in second in command of a warship that's going to be sent to the Caribbean to go to Haiti to put down the Haitian Revolution. Or at least that's the plan. Of course, that is not what happens. Jerome ends up using his little trip to the Caribbean to flee first to Martinique and then to the United States because while he was under command of his ship, he sort of accidentally shot at a British ship, which is a massive no-no in 1803 because England and France are technically no longer at war because of the Treaty of Amiens. And now he's just attacked a technically allied ship. To make matters even worse, when Jerome decides to peace out of the Navy, he doesn't exactly have permission to do so, and he especially does not have permission to go to the United States. And to make matters even worse, while he's off in the U.S., the ship that he was supposed to be in charge of ends up getting captured by British forces, which clearly not great. As a result of all this, Napoleon says that letting Jerome be in charge of that single ship was one of his biggest mistakes in life. I was unable to determine if Napoleon felt that the whole Russia example was bigger than letting Jerome be in charge of one boat. So anyway, Jerome arrives in the United States in the summer of 1803. As soon as he gets to the U.S., he meets with one of the French consuls there and says, yeah, yeah, I'm going to try to get back to France as soon as possible. I just need to raise some money. I just need to find a ship to take me back home. But then he aggressively does not do that and instead settles down in the D.C. area and gets introduced to Baltimore society where everyone wants to meet him because, after all, he's the young and handsome brother of the very famous Napoleon Bonaparte. One of the people he's going to meet during his time in Baltimore is a young woman named Elizabeth Patterson. The two meet in the fall of 1803 at a ball that was held by one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, so you know it was a nice and casual time to meet someone. Elizabeth Patterson was the daughter of one of the wealthiest merchants in Baltimore. She had a reputation for being extremely beautiful. Apparently, she looked a lot like Polly and Bonaparte, very witty, and fluent in French, which means the two can actually communicate. When the two meet, Jerome is 19 and Elizabeth is 18, which means that they have probably the healthiest age gap out of any relationship to come out of the Bonaparte family. The two fall for each other pretty quickly after meeting, although initially Jerome was probably more into Elizabeth than she was into him due to some mocking nicknames that Jerome had a habit of calling Elizabeth to his fellow friends. After they meet, Elizabeth threatens to elope with Jerome unless her father gives permission for the two to get married, because we are in that point in history where you did need parental permission to get married, especially if you were a woman of 18 years old. Meanwhile, Jerome goes to the French consul and lets him know that he's getting married, and he's going to get married no matter what anyone, including Napoleon, thinks. And then Jerome and Elizabeth go to City Hall to get a marriage license, which ends up being a little bit more dramatic than anyone was expecting, because one, 
both are so young. Everyone's like, are you sure you actually want to do this? And two, because of the fact that Jerome is seriously in debt. He does, however, manage to get the French consul to pay off about half of his debt before the wedding. Jerome and Elizabeth end up getting married on December 24th, 1803 in Baltimore by one of America's first Catholic bishops and the mayor of Baltimore because the two are fancy like that and can pull a real crowd of who's who at their wedding. Elizabeth's wedding dress is super scandalous in America at the time because it's in the French style, which means it's extremely thin and extremely low cut. And everyone at the wedding is like, oh my gosh, a woman has a body? How the hell are we supposed to deal with that? And then there's that little wrinkle that according to French law, the marriage is invalid because Jerome needs parental consent to get married since he's under the age of 20 at the time of the wedding and his mother, Maria Letizia, certainly did not consent. However, Jerome and Elizabeth ignore that little detail, which, spoiler, will bite them in the ass and decide to go on a lovely honeymoon to Niagara Falls. In fact, Jerome and Elizabeth are probably one of the first couples in the United States to choose that particular location as their honeymoon getaway. After coming back from the honeymoon, the two settle down in Baltimore, where they cause quite the commotion in polite society because Elizabeth does love to wear those low-cut, thin French dresses. For a little bit after the wedding, it looks like things might be okay, but then, of course, Napoleon finds out that his brother has married this random American, and he is super pissed off. After all, Jerome had just pulled a Lucien Bonaparte and married some commoner instead of a princess or a noble lady like he was supposed to. And just as a note, remember, Elizabeth's father was super wealthy. He was probably the wealthiest man in Maryland, so really Napoleon shouldn't be complaining. Napoleon decides to punish Jerome by cutting off his by cutting off his allowance and saying that the marriage won't be recognized in France since Mama Bonaparte didn't consent to it, which means that any children that Jerome and Elizabeth will have will be bastards according to French law. Napoleon doesn't straight out demand that Jerome divorce Elizabeth because at this point in his life, Napoleon is very opposed to divorce, but he's going to try to make Jerome's life so miserable that Jerome decides to do so anyways. For the next year, French consuls in the U.S. working with Napoleon are going to try to get Jerome back to France, especially because Jerome keeps spending money that he doesn't have and is wildly falling deeper and deeper in debt. There is some communication between Jerome and Napoleon via letters, but sadly those letters are lost to history, so we don't know exactly what either of them were saying. For a hot second, the marriage of Jerome and Elizabeth and Napoleon's reaction to it almost causes a bit of an international incident between France and the United States. Napoleon is trying to force the U.S. government to make the marriage invalid in the United States, and Thomas Jefferson has to be like, look, Napoleon, I can't actually do that because in the U.S., citizens are allowed to basically marry whoever they want. 
this tension between the U.S. and France over Jerome Bonaparte does cause some larger diplomatic issues because it's going on right when the U.S. is trying to buy Louisiana and other lands from France and what will be known as the Louisiana Purchase. But eventually, the diplomatic side of things is resolved, even though Jerome's place within the Bonaparte family is still slightly up in the air. By 1805, Joseph and Elizabeth finally decide to go back to France to see Napoleon, probably because Jerome really was out of money and it needed to get back in his brother's good graces. The two decide that if Napoleon were to actually meet Elizabeth, he would really like her and would improve and would approve of the relationship, which ends up being a complete misreading of Napoleon Bonaparte. However, the trip over to France isn't exactly easy. They first have to find a neutral ship, which isn't exactly the easiest thing to come by in 1805, and then the first ship they choose almost gets destroyed in a storm, and Elizabeth and Jerome lose all of their wedding gifts that have been packed aboard, and Elizabeth gets thrown overboard in the confusion, although she does survive. The two then manage to find a second ship to take them to France, and they do ultimately get to the country. However, once they actually arrive in France, it turns out that Napoleon has refused to let Elizabeth step on French soil, which includes Spain and Portugal for some reason, and is refusing to call her Mrs. Bonaparte, which means, yeah, he is not about to recognize that marriage. Because Elizabeth is now trapped on the ship, he, she and Jerome decide to go to Milan together to try to catch Napoleon there, because Napoleon didn't say anything about stepping on Milanese soil. However, when the couple arrives in Milan, Napoleon refuses to see them. He tells Jerome that he will only meet with him if Jerome agrees to annul the marriage to Elizabeth and if Elizabeth promises to give up the last name Bonaparte. However, in an attempt to sweeten the deal, Napoleon does promise to give Elizabeth a pension of 60,000 francs, which is about $6 million or so in 2020 money. With this little sweetener, Jerome decides that, yes, he is going to go to Milan alone to talk to his big brother. When he decides this, and he and Elizabeth part, it's the last time that they will ever see each other as a husband and wife, and the last time that they will actually ever speak to each other. By this time, Elizabeth is extremely pregnant, and she can't exactly give birth on the boat because, well, she'd probably die in the process. She first tries to go to the Netherlands to give birth because, as we've established, the Netherlands is where you go to give birth if you're in some sort of royal exile, but she ends up getting turned away by the Dutch, who by now Napoleon theoretically is ruling over via Louis, and after an American intervention, she manages to get to England. When she lands in England, Elizabeth gets a really nice reception from the British people, which convinces Napoleon that she is a traitor and can't be trusted. Oops. Elizabeth ends up giving birth to a son, Jerome Napoleon Bonaparte, on July 7th, 1805. In November, she and the baby move back to the United States when it becomes painfully clear that her husband Jerome is not going to come to England with her and has basically abandoned her. 
And that is what ends up happening. Once baby Jerome is born, Napoleon tells his brother Jerome that he is going to completely cut Jerome off and maybe even exile him from France if Jerome insists on staying with Elizabeth. So Jerome gives in. The two brothers go back to France and Napoleon has the French courts rule the marriage invalid. Technically, the Pope never annuls Jerome and Elizabeth's marriage, which from like a religious standpoint makes it a little bit more questionable, but the fact that the courts have named the marriage invalid is enough for Napoleon. As a result of this, Jerome is going to be the only member of the Bonaparte family, besides his famous older brother, of course, to actually get a divorce, even though, as we've established, none of the Bonapartes are particularly faithful to their partners. Once Jerome comes back into the family fold, Napoleon begins giving him stuff, and Jerome just gets to hang out being super spoiled, going to various parties, and insisting that everyone treat him like a real naval officer, even though, as we've established, his naval career was not exactly good. Through Napoleon pulling some strings, Jerome will eventually be put in charge of a few ships and doesn't make a complete hash out of that. And that's going to be Jerome's life for the next year or so. He's being spoiled, occasionally dealing with the Navy, and going to a lot of parties. But all that changes in August 1807, when Napoleon makes the 23-year-old Jerome the King of Westphalia. For context, Westphalia was a kingdom that Napoleon had sort of arbitrarily created out of all the German states that he had conquered and doesn't personally want to deal with. As a result, Westphalia is just going to be a ton of tiny little like formal principalities and city-states that are now all united together under French administration, but also broken into eight departments. Don't overthink it. A few weeks after Jerome finds out that he's going to be king of Westphalia, he gets married for a second time on August 22nd, 1807, to Catherine of Württemberg. Catherine is the daughter of Frederick of Württemberg, who was a duke and then later king of Württemberg through Napoleon's help. And as a fun little side tangent, apparently Frederick was extremely tall, which made him kind of infamous in Europe. Through Catherine, Jerome will now be related by marriage to Napoleon's future rivals, the King of Prussia and the Tsar of Russia. A few months after his marriage, Jerome officially gets crowned the King of Westphalia on December 18, 1807, when he is only 23, which really makes me wonder what I've been doing with my life, because I am older than 23 and I've not been crowned the King or Queen of anything. Even though Jerome is technically king of Westphalia, he isn't going to get to do his own thing. Napoleon just doesn't trust him to rule, and is going to send five ministers and three regents to Westphalia to keep an eye on Jerome. And when we think about this, this is pretty insulting. Jerome by now, in the legal sense, is a grown-up, and regents were traditionally used to rule for children, so Napoleon is basically saying, I think that when it comes to your ruling capabilities, you are a child. Not even Napoleon's sisters had to rule with a regent. They at least got to rule in their own name, albeit with the hope of their husbands. Even with all the safeguards that Napoleon 
put in place, Jerome isn't going to exactly be great at the whole being a king thing. He's going to spend a ton of money in Westphalia, and the debts that Jerome keeps falling into are going to be quite the point of contention between him and his older brother. In 1808, Jerome reaches out to his ex-wife, Elizabeth, and asks her to send their son, Jerome, who everyone calls Beau, which is what I will do to make things less confusing, to Westphalia so that Beau can be raised there as the son of a king. Elizabeth contemplates this offer, thinks about how much Jerome had already screwed her over, and says, thanks, but no thanks. In an attempt to get his son and ex-wife into Westphalia, Jerome says, look, if you let Beau come over, you can also live in Westphalia, and I'll even give you a castle and a bunch of land of your own. Once again, Elizabeth thinks over this lovely offer and then says, yeah, fuck you, I'm not taking this offer because Westphalia isn't big enough for two queens, and if it really came down to it, I could totally whip your new wife's ass. Even though Elizabeth has turned down Jerome, she's still going to accept that annual pension from Napoleon because she's no fool. As the king of Westphalia, Jerome is going to make some attempts. He's really not going to be doing any reform the way his older siblings did because doing reform would actually require thought, which Jerome doesn't really have. Instead, his goal is to make Westphalia a cultural center. This doesn't go really well. Because when Jerome takes the throne, Westphalia is in a terrible economic situation. It had been super plundered from all the various battles in the Napoleonic Wars and just doesn't have the money or capability or desire to be a cultural center. But Jerome is not going to be dissuaded. Instead of organically making Westphalia a cultural center, he just starts importing a ton of furniture from Paris and starts planning a bunch of architectural projects, which on the one hand is nice, but as always with Jerome, it's way too expensive, he doesn't have the money to pay for it, he and his kingdom go spiraling into debt, and as always, Napoleon is extremely annoyed. Two years into his reign, war between France and Austria is getting pretty serious, and Jerome and Westphalia are going to be pulled into the conflict. The Austrians and their allies start to attack Westphalia because they realize Jerome probably doesn't have the same military genius as his big brother, and wouldn't you know, they were correct. As soon as the Austrians start attacking, Jerome just can't handle the military pressure, and as a result, the various European allies against Napoleon are able to basically run wild through his younger brother's kingdom. There's a famous story that a British duke, the Duke of Brunswick, was able to spend several days in Kassel, Westphalia's capital, without having to worry about being attacked by Jerome's forces because there were no defenses in Westphalia. Napoleon is not happy about this. He wants to crack down on the attacks in Westphalia, and he realizes Jerome is not going to be the guy to do that. So he tells Jerome to give all of his troops over to General Junot, aka Caroline Bonaparte's ex-boyfriend, and to let Junot lead the war effort in Westphalia. Jerome says no to this. He wants to lead his own armies on his own, and when he says no, surprise, surprise, Jerome is extremely pissed off. 
surprise, surprise, Napoleon gets even more pissed off. And then, of course, Jerome still is deeply in debt to France and has no way of paying it back. In fact, he's going to have to go even more in debt and keep and keep borrowing and borrowing money from France just to pay off his army. So things aren't exactly going great on the Jerome front. Also, while all this is going on, Westphalia is going through a fun little wave of German nationalism. Most of the citizens are like, maybe we should be ruling ourselves instead of some random French kid. So the civilians start to push against the entire Jerome being in charge thing. And as always, Jerome just cannot handle any of this. It gets so bad that Napoleon sends one of his favorite commanders, Davout, into Westphalia to help out. But once again, doesn't exactly go great because Jerome doesn't like having other people tell him what to do. However, at this point, the situation in Westphalia is so bad that Jerome has no choice but to listen to Napoleon and let Davout be in charge and to join Napoleon's army as a second in command. It doesn't last long, though. When Napoleon keeps relying on Devoe and not listening to Jerome, Jerome gets angry, straight up leaves Napoleon, and goes back to Westphalia because he's so pissed off at his older brother. Despite this drama, the two do end up reconciling, and Jerome does agree to fight for Napoleon during the Russian campaign. Apparently, no one had told Jerome how far they were going to be marching, or that on a long campaign, you should pack light, or if they did, Jerome didn't listen, because Jerome shows up to the campaign with over 200 shirts and 60 pairs of boots. Given how badly the Russian campaign goes, and how much they need to retreat, and how quickly they need to retreat, this packing decision was maybe not one of Jerome's best life choices. Ultimately, it doesn't matter all that much because Jerome isn't really going to see any fighting in Russia. He pieces out of the campaign fairly early to take charge of the Mir Castle in modern-day Belarus, which he technically wasn't supposed to do. So between that and his overpacking tendencies, Napoleon just goes off the handle at him. Once again, Jerome is annoyed by this and decides that instead of sticking with his brother, he's going to sulk back to Westphalia. But as we've established, the situation in Westphalia isn't exactly great. By the fall of 1813, Westphalia is completely surrounded by the Austrians and the Russians, and Jerome realizes, oh fuck, I'm completely out of options. So he does make the attempt to start seriously fighting against Napoleon's rivals. It just doesn't last that long. Jerome and his wife end up getting driven out of Westphalia on September 30th, 1813. For a brief moment, it does look like Jerome might try to fight his way back to the capital city of Castle, but that doesn't last long, and by October 16th, 1813, Jerome and his wife Catherine are hanging out in Paris trying to recover. Catherine's choice to stay with Jerome is impressive because her father, who by now is kind of sick of Napoleon, had attempted to bribe her to leave her husband and the Bonapartes at large with fancy titles and other things. And the other reason why it's impressive that, oh, 
that Catherine decides to stay with Jerome is because he had more than a little bit of a reputation for being an extreme womanizer. On August 24th, 1814, Catherine ends up giving birth to her first child with Jerome, a son who also will be named Jerome because naming creativity isn't exactly a thing in this family. So this means that Jerome now has two children named Jerome, which definitely isn't complicated. Once he's out of Westphalia, Jerome is really going to escalate his womanizing ways to the point that women in Napoleon's court in Paris are complaining about how irritating and creepy his younger brother is. But Catherine stays with him through it all because it is the 1800s, so what choice does she have as a woman? After Napoleon abdicates for the first time and goes to Elba, he and Jerome stop paying Elizabeth Patterson that annual pension that she had been promised. Elizabeth, shockingly, is extremely pissed off about this entire state of affairs, but as always, there's not a lot that she can do to regain the money because the French government and treasury is in a bit of a freefall. When Napoleon returns back to France from Elba, the two brothers reconcile yet again. Jerome joins the army corps and fights with Napoleon and apparently does a pretty decent job in this round of fighting. He apparently acquits himself very well at Waterloo. But then Waterloo ends Napoleon's second attempt to rule France. Napoleon is sent to St. Helena in exile and Jerome and his wife Catherine have to figure out what to do. Luckily, Catherine's father, Frederick of Württemberg, offers him and Catherine a place to live, even though Frederick wasn't exactly the biggest fan of the Bonapartes at this point in the story. Jerome takes his father-in-law up on the offer, and he and Catherine move to Göppingen Palace in the village of Göppingen in the modern-day Stuttgart region of Germany. So, Catherine and Jerome have a place to stay, but as always, it's not going to last that long because, as it turns out, Frederick is pretty controlling and really limits what the couple can do, so the two decide to peace out and live on their own. Instead of staying in Germany, Jerome and Catherine will move to Austria and live fairly independently. They really are the members of the Bonaparte family to live the most independently. They even change their names from Bonaparte to the Count and Countess of de Montfort. The two will then spend the next few years wandering around in Europe together. During this time, Catherine will give birth to two more children, a daughter, Mathilde, and a second son, Napoleon. By 1822, Jerome is ready to settle down. Most of the Bonaparte family is in the Italian peninsula, and he decides that he's going to move his family to Rome. However, the family can't stay in Rome all that long because Louis Bonaparte's two kids, Napoleon Louis and Louis Napoleon, are causing all sorts of political dramas by getting involved in various radical Republican movements around Rome and by trying to push the Austrians out of Rome, which makes the Bonapartes extremely unpopular in Rome and the surrounding areas. To avoid that unpopularity, Jerome and his family end up moving from Rome to Florence. And it's in Florence that Jerome will see his ex-wife, Elizabeth Patterson, for the final time. Apparently, the two were at the Pitti Palace on the same day. They see each other from across a hallway, but they do not say anything to each other. 
Elizabeth and her son, Beau, had been living in Europe since 1819. Elizabeth was looking for a new husband for herself and was attempting to get the larger Bonaparte clan to embrace Beau. For a hot second, it looked like Pauline Bonaparte might adopt Beau as a sort of quasi-son because she didn't have any of her own living children and because she and Beau really got along, but this adoption doesn't really go anywhere. Elizabeth is also going to attempt to arrange a marriage between Beau and his cousin Charlotte, Joseph's daughter, but that relationship also isn't going to go anywhere, and she will end up marrying a different one of her cousins, one of Louis's kids. Despite this failure in the marriage market and attempting to get recognition from his French relatives, Beau will end up going to Harvard University, inheriting a ton of money from Pauline Bonaparte, and marrying a wealthy Maryland heiress whose father had founded one of the first railroads. Yes, Elizabeth Patterson isn't super happy about Beau's future because Beau never does marry a princess and never quite gets that recognition in the Bonaparte family, but his wife is rich and everything ends up pretty okay. In 1835, Jerome's second wife, Catherine, dies, so suddenly Jerome is a widower. That's all going to change in 1840, when Jerome marries a third time to one of his mistresses, an, an Italian marquise, Justine Bartoloni Baldelli. Jerome and Justine will stay married until his death. The same year that Jerome marries for the last time, he also arranges the marriage of his daughter Mathilde to a member of the Russian nobility, Count Anatoly Demidov, the Prince of Sandinato. And just like how one of his children was engaged to a cousin, Mathilde also was originally engaged to another cousin, this time Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, aka the future Napoleon III, but that engagement falls apart and she ends up marrying Count Anatoly instead. The marriage between Count Anatoly and Mathilde doesn't go super great. The two end up getting divorced in 1847 with the help of the future Alexander II of Russia. The same year that his daughter gets divorced, Jerome finally returns to France, and he hadn't been in the country for over 30 years. By the time Jerome arrives in France, things are massively changing. France still has a monarch, Louis-Philippe, but the king's regime is getting weaker and weaker because everyone thinks that Louis-Philippe is extremely corrupt, which isn't inaccurate. In an attempt to get some support, from former Bonapartists, Louis-Philippe passes a law that says members of the Bonaparte family can re-enter the country again. Because before this, if you were a Bonaparte, you weren't allowed in France. And Jerome takes advantage of this and returns to France for the first time in decades. And then in 1848, there's a wee bit of a revolution in France. I mean, one isn't there. And it all ends with Jerome's nephew, Louis-Napoleon, becoming elected president of France, which is a whole other story that I promise I will cover in our next study guide. When Louis-Napoleon gets elected president of France, Jerome is the only one of the Bonaparte siblings who is left alive. 
So he and his nephew have a huge reconciliation, and Louis Napoleon gives Jerome all of these nice cushy gigs, like being the president of the Senate and the Marshal of Paris. Jerome is going to spend the next few years living in France, making money, being fairly spoiled, much like the way he was as a teen. But then, in 1856, the entire Jerome Bonaparte, the Jerome Bonaparte family, enters some legal issues. Because Elizabeth Patterson and Beau are trying to get Beau permission to use the last name Bonaparte. Because, after all, Elizabeth Patterson and Jerome were married when Jerome was born, so he really is a Bonaparte, no matter what Napoleon would say. Ultimately, the family decides that, yes, Beau can use the last name Bonaparte, but he's not allowed to have any of the privileges involved in the name now that a Bonaparte is running France again, and none of the Bonapartes really want this random American to show up trying to claim power. And Beau is fine with that. He doesn't try to claim any imperial titles or anything of that nature. Instead, he and his wife will have a few children, one of whom will end up founding the predecessor of the FBI and work for Teddy Roosevelt, which isn't too shabby. All of this family drama really does take a toll on Jerome. He ends up dying on June 24th, 1860, near Paris at the age of 75. His body is buried in a cemetery in L'Invalide in Paris. So, for those fans of a study guide who prefer bullet points to full-on lectures, let's do a quick little recap. Jerome Bonaparte was the youngest of the Bonaparte brothers. He was only an infant when his father died and his two older brothers came back to Corsica to attempt to help the family out. Thanks to a lack of a father and the fact that the Bonaparte family fortunes were kind of non-existent at this point, Jerome doesn't have a formal education. In 1793, the entire Bonaparte family flees to France, etc., etc., and Napoleon starts rising through the ranks, which is going to be really good for Jerome. Napoleon ends up sending Jerome to a religious Catholic school in 1795 to get a full education, and at this school, Jerome starts getting the reputation for being extremely spoiled. Jerome goes to another school, spends no time studying, and all of his time flirting with nearby women, so he ultimately gets pulled out of school and gets his education finished by tutors. By 1800, Jerome is 16, he's out of school, and he's known for spending a lot of money on things he does not need. To keep him out of trouble, Napoleon gets him a job first in the consular guards, which ends terribly when Jerome tries to kill another guard, and then in the French Navy. At the beginning, it looks like Jerome will be fine in the Navy, but then when he's put in charge of a warship by Haiti, he ends up peacing out and going to the U.S. instead, which you're not really supposed to do if you're in the Navy. In the United States, Jerome settles down by Baltimore, quickly becomes a member of American high society, and meets and falls in love with one Elizabeth Patterson, whose father is one of the wealthiest men in Maryland. The two decide to get married because they're so in love, and they're only 19 and 18, and they do that even though Jerome technically doesn't have parental permission, which he needs because he's under the age of consent in France. The wedding starts off great. The two have an amazing honeymoon, 
in Niagara Falls and quickly become movers and shakers in polite Baltimore society because of Elizabeth's daring fashion sense. But then Napoleon finds out about the marriage and he's super pissed off because Jerome, like the rest of the Bonapartes, is supposed to marry a prince or a princess or someone who can help Napoleon consolidate European power. He decides that the marriage between Jerome and Elizabeth is invalid because Jerome hadn't asked for parental permission and basically disowns Jerome from the family. In 1805, Jerome is deep enough in debt that he decides to try to reconcile with his brother and he and Elizabeth go over to France. Except Napoleon refuses to let Elizabeth set foot on French soil and by now she's pretty pregnant so Elizabeth ends up making her way over to England where she will give birth to a son, Jerome Napoleon Bonaparte, aka Beau. Meanwhile, Napoleon threatens slash convinces Jerome to divorce Elizabeth. He promises to give Elizabeth money in exchange. Jerome agrees. A French court rules the marriage invalid and Jerome is now single. Jerome then spends the next few years hanging out in Paris, going to parties, etc, etc. But then in 1807, Napoleon decides to make his little brother the King of Westphalia, a small kingdom made up of various German states that Napoleon had conquered. Right before becoming king, Jerome gets married to a second time to Catherine of Württemberg, the daughter of the King of Württemberg. He then gets crowned King of Westphalia in December 1807 when he is only 23 years old. Jerome is going to attempt some minor reforms in Westphalia, but most of his work in his new country is really going to be based around making it a cultural center, aka importing a lot of expensive furniture and art, which once again sends him into debt. Also, Napoleon doesn't exactly trust his little brother to rule, so he's going to send all sorts of ministers and regents to Westphalia to keep an eye on Jerome. In 1809, war between France and Austria gets really serious. The Austrians start attacking Westphalia, and Jerome just cannot handle it, and pretty soon his country is just being run through by Austrians. The drama over Westphalia causes a wedge between Jerome and Napoleon. They keep reconciling and splitting because Jerome doesn't like to listen to other military commanders. This comes to a head when Jerome gets invited to the Russian campaign, massively overpacks, and stays holed up in a Belarusian castle instead of actually fighting. By the fall of 1813, there's no way that Jerome is going to be able to hold on to Westphalia anymore. It is completely surrounded by the Austrians and Russians. He attempts to fight back, he fails, and by October 1813, Jerome and his wife are in Paris. Soon after, in 1814, his wife Catherine gives birth to their first son, who is also named Jerome, which is just way too confusing, and the two settle down in Paris. Jerome will support Napoleon through his first abdication into Waterloo, where he apparently does pretty well, but he doesn't stick around for the second abdication, especially because now that Napoleon's off the throne, Elizabeth Patterson is no longer getting her divorce settlement, and she's pretty irritated, and Jerome doesn't want to deal with this. Instead, Jerome and his wife move back to his father-in-law's house. They stay there for a little bit before piecing out and just 
moving around Europe. Jerome and Catherine settle in Rome slash Florence in 1822. During his time in Florence, he will see his ex-wife one final time, but nothing comes of it. Then in 1835, Catherine dies. Jerome is a widower, but he will get remarried four years later in 1840 to one of his mistresses, an, an Italian marquise. In 1847, Jerome finally is able to return to France when Louis-Philippe loosens the laws banning the Bonapartes from the country. This means that Jerome is going to be in the country when his nephew, Louis-Napoleon, becomes elected president of France. Jerome is the only one of the Bonapartes who is still alive for this, which means that he gets all sorts of fun and fancy honors before dying on June 24th, 1860 in Paris. So yeah, that is Jerome. Probably the sibling who caused the most trouble for Napoleon, but also the least competent of any of the other siblings. Like, say what you will about Pauline, or Lucien, or even Joseph, but none of them lost an entire warship at the age of 19. For this episode, my research mostly came from Shannon Sellin's 2015 article, Jerome Napoleon Bonaparte, Napoleon's American Nephew, Andrew Hilliard Adderidge's book, Napoleon's Brothers, and Philip Walsingham Sargent's book, Jerome Bonaparte, The Burlesque Napoleon. As always, for a full list of sources and relevant images, you can visit the website, the website, sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast, sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. Next week, I will be releasing to go with the Jerome episode, I am releasing a little tangent cast on Napoleon's only legitimate son, Napoleon II, which makes sense because the full-length episode next week will be on Napoleon III, so we do need to figure out how we get from Napoleon to Napoleon III, and that is Napoleon II. As always, the tangent casts are available on Patreon for patrons who subscribe more than $5 a month. The website for that is patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. And if you do listen and donate, thank you so much. As always, you can find me on social media at Twitter, on Twitter at sadgirlstudypod, or on Instagram at sadgirlstudy. The best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or to subscribe to the podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And as and please, as always, let me know how I'm doing, read and review, or else I'll be sad. Thanks! <laughs>